Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, today we're breaking away from our series and just going to do a one-off here on a Father's Day theme. And so I've entitled our message, The Blessing, Pass It On. The concept of a legacy is actually becoming more and more common today. It's always been a good fit within the Christian world. We want to pass on what we believe. We care deeply about future generations. So legacy has always been a Christian concept, but, but I believe it's actually becoming much more commonplace in the world around us as well, and that's a good trend. I was reading an article the other day off the CNBC website about Jeff Bezos' ex-wife. Some of you might know who she is, Mackenzie Scott. And I believe she had just donated, I believe, two and a half or $2.7 billion, and it's not her only donation, uh, to make a difference around the world. She's actually part of a fraternity of billionaires, that's billionaires with a B, who have pledged to give away at least 50% of their wealth to charitable causes before they die. I believe Bill Gates and Warren Buffett uh, are part of that club as well. And this impulse to create and leave a better world is one of the better impulses in all humanity created in God's image. And I think there is this growing sense that there's got to be more to our lives. And and when these billionaires are doing this, it's just a great example. But it's also one of our motivations for having children is to leave a legacy. It's why we care so much about their development. It's why we care so much in particular about their spiritual development. And although parenting is not an absolute science, we all believe that we do pass on to some degree who we are and what we value, and it's what we want want to pass on. Decades ago, a man named Dr. Winship wrote a book called A Spiritual Clinic, and I want to read a a section of that book. It's about a contrast in legacies. There's a little old English here, but you'll be able to filter that. He's talking about two family trees. Listen to this. The father of... Jonathan Edwards, of course, the great, great, great uh, speaker, minister, revivalist. The father of Jonathan Edwards was a minister, and his mother was the daughter of a clergyman. Among their descendants were 14 presidents of colleges, more than 100 college professors, more than 100 lawyers, 30 judges, 60 physicians, more than 100 clergymen, missionaries, and theology professors, and about 60 authors. There is scarcely any great, sorry, south of the border comment here, scarcely any great American industry that has not had one of his family among its chief promoters, such as the product of one Christian family reared under the most favorable conditions. The contrast is presented in the Jukes family, which could not be made to study and would not work, and is said to have cost one of the states in the U.S. a million dollars, and that was back when a million dollars actually was a lot of money. Their entire record is one of pauperism and crime, insanity, imbecility. Among their 1,200 known descendants, 310 were professional paupers, 440 were physically wrecked by their own wickedness, 60 were habitual thieves, 130 were convicted criminals, 55 were victims of impurity, only 20 learned a trade, 10 of those learned it in a state prison, and this notorious family produced seven murderers. Now, I think we'd all agree that's quite a contrast. 
a major part of ensuring that the legacy that we pass on is a good one is to make sure that those we love grow up with a great sense of value and significance. A huge part of being a successful parent is, is raising kids that know who they are, they know their love, they know their value. It might not sound like the most spiritual issue, but it's incredibly important for their development. And when we fail to do this, especially as fathers, we leave what's called, and now there is a legacy called, and this is a quote, the father wound. The father wound. You can find books written about this now, and it's real. It's defined by men's fraternity this way. An ongoing emotional, social, or spiritual deficit ordinarily met in a healthy relationship with dad that now must be overcome by other means. I want to read that again. The father wound is an ongoing emotional, social, or spiritual deficit ordinarily met in a healthy relationship with dad that now must be overcome by other means. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to read a passage of scripture that you're probably familiar with, Genesis 25, verses 21 to 28. But to begin there, we're going to talk about more. We're talking about Jacob's life. So Jacob's mother, Rebekah, is giving birth or going to give birth. Isaac, her husband, prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children, plural, struggled together within her, and she said, if it is so, why then, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people will be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So this is interesting. Before Jacob and Esau had their sibling rivalry, God has already predicted Jacob is going to be the one that rises in supremacy. Now when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau, which actually means hairy. So they would actually name children based on circumstances. Esau was red, and he was hairy, so guess what? His name was Harry, and his nickname was Red. It was that simple. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding onto Esau's heel. So, you know, his hand's coming out of mom, hanging onto his brother. So his name was called Jacob, which sort of means supplanter, like he's trying to get out first, but he couldn't beat him. Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man, living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. To me, that is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Isaac loved Esau. Rebekah loved Jacob. It's not put there as like just history. It's put there to, to tell us what this set in motion. It set in motion a spiritual and relational dysfunction that took half a lifetime to overcome in Jacob's life and sometimes in our lives as well. I want to look at three principles that we see from this passage and the chapters that follow, and then a few applications. First, human relationships are natural intermediate vehicles through which we first experience being valued. It's how we find identity and security. We are not just intended, now this isn't going to sound super spiritual, but it's absolutely true. 
We are not just intended to find our identity and value from God. Our parents are intermediaries of that sense of value and security before we even know God. It's an important part of what we do as parents. Now this is a fascinating passage to me for several reasons. The Bible is not a parenting book, but there are some passages expressly written about parenting, particularly in Proverbs. You'll find some in the epistles as well. Genesis 12 through 50 is actually mostly about the history of Israel as it evolved from a small clan into a nation. It's how we get from Abraham to a nation going down to Egypt that will eventually be enslaved and so on and come out as a nation of a couple of million. But what's interesting is the Jacob narrative is extensive. It's like the biggest narrative, Jacob and Abraham. It's one of the biggest narratives, occupies much of Genesis. And his struggle to attain a sense of personal value and significance is one of the largest narratives, stories in the Old Testament. And it wasn't necessary. If, if Moses, when he wrote this, wasn't trying to help us understand the struggle that Jacob went through because of this deficit in his life, he could have just said, Isaac beget Jacob and Jacob beget Joseph and could have skipped the whole story. But he doesn't. He doesn't because he wants us to learn from Jacob's spiritual struggles. Now in general, I get really concerned when people in my position or people in your position take the Bible and make it say things it's not intended to say. So you can illustrate all kinds of things from the Bible. But whenever you look at the Bible, whenever you look at a page of scripture, you should be asking yourself this question. What was the author's intent in that passage? You shouldn't be saying, hey, you know, this passage illustrates this. That's not the real question. The Bible can be used to illustrate a lot of things. The question is, what did the author of Scripture intend for you to take from that passage? You can take 20 other things, but if that's what you believe the Bible is teaching there rather than illustrating, then people like me or you can become great cult leaders, and that's not what we want to be. We always need to look for these two words, authorial intent, or else we can make the Bible say anything we want it to say. My point is this. I believe in this passage about Jacob's life, there is in this some authorial intent about this spiritual struggle for identity and security. God created us to develop in all ways. We see this in the life of Jesus when he was a little boy. It said that he grew you know, sort of in favor with God and man physically, socially, in all these different ways. God created us to develop both physically and spiritually and psychologically. We are whole beings. And there are bonding processes that are intended to happen between us and our parents. There are processes that are very real that help us to grow and develop so that we are ready for God and we are better for him as well. And we are intended to experience those processes with both mom and dad. And what we experience for mom, I realize we're in a world that doesn't want to believe there's a difference between men and women, but there are differences between men and women in what we give to our children, what our children get from us, how they develop. In the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, our connection to God is modeled, intended to be modeled after our earthly father relationship. Interestingly, Studies of atheists have found that the dozen most famous atheists of the last 400 years all had deeply defective father relationships. There's a connection between people rejecting God and having terrible relationships with their fathers. 
Dr. Paul Vitz, The Psychology of Atheism. Al Surhall, I love this quote, a child is not likely to find a father in God unless he finds something of God in his father. A child is not likely to find a father in God unless he finds something of God in his father. So Jacob comes into the world needing Rebecca and Isaac per God's design. He needs mom and dad. From Rebecca, as we get from our mothers, our mothers tend to be our primary nurturing influences. They build in us in ways that fathers don't. Now, it doesn't mean fathers aren't nurturers, but mothers build in us something unique. I remember my mother, she passed away about 20 years ago. I remember as a little child, I was supposed to be the last child, and then Peter came along. Surprise, surprise. Anyway, I was supposed to be the last child. I'm clearly over that. But I was supposed to be the last child, and she was going to spoil me because she had four kids, really in rapid succession, my older brother Dan, then twin girls, and then me, and I was to be the last child, and she's told me how she was going to spoil me. I remember her coming into my room when I was little. I had this little Bo Peep crib or bed. She'd come and sing to me. She'd sit on a chair and sing to me, and she'd try to sneak away thinking I was asleep, and I, of course, wasn't. I'd say, Mom, Mom, come back, more, more, more. She'd come back. I had her wrapped around my finger. She was nurturing. She loved me. I remember her disciplining me, too, but she was a wonderful mother. That's what we get from Mom. We get other things from Mom, too, but that's what we get primarily from Mom is this nurturing influence. From Dad, from Isaac, Jacob was intended to get his primary giver of security and identity. What a father thinks of us deeply affects those issues in our lives. It doesn't mean mom doesn't give us that too. Obviously, we overlap in our roles, but mom and dad are different. Jacob had a close relationship with mom, but it wasn't enough. It was the lack of his relationship with Isaac that affected him. And both mom and dad made the oldest mistake in the parenting handbook. Favoritism. Rebecca saw herself in Jacob. She had this young boy, and she's like, he's just me. He was her soulmate. He knew what Pinterest was 4,000 years before it became a public company. He asked for a spice rack for Christmas. His stew won the Hebrew Good Housekeeping Award. He understood interior decorating. He knew his colors. He helped mom pick out her dresses for events because he knew her colors. He was a mama's boy. I'm not saying he was effeminate. I'm saying he was a mama's boy. He and mom identified. They had some similar interests. And they had a connection. Esau, total opposite. Isaac saw himself in Esau. Esau comes out kind of like the man's man. You know, he's hairy. He's red. He was on the cover of Outdoor Life when he was 14. He won the big buck contest in the Middle East. He played defense on the local hockey team before they had ice. That's impressive. He, and this is a quote in the Hebrew, had a taste for game. Literally, in the Hebrew, venison was in his mouth. That was Esau. He's a daddy's boy. Isaac saw that son, he's like, he's a man's man. And he had a connection with him. And both parents made a mistake. They went to the child they most identified with and they ignored the other. 
And both of these boys should have had healthy relationships with both mom and dad. Instead, they both faced a deficit. This story is about how it affected Jacob, including his relationship with God, because this daddy deficit eventually leaves a God deficit. Second point, this parenting deficit led Jacob into an unhealthy quest for security and identity. When he doesn't get something from home that he really needs, this sense of security and identity that comes from a close relationship, an accepting relationship with the father figure in his life, something's missing. Something's missing. And so we naturally compensate. There were two customs in that era that established one's basic place in the world. These were sort of rites of passage, ceremonies, customs. One of them was a birthright. One of them was a blessing. A blessing was more of a ceremony. A birthright had a little bit more to what was automatically yours. Now, it seems, as best we can figure out from history and from the Bible, that a birthright was related to one share of the inheritance, possibly leadership in the clan, but mostly an economic issue. So if you were, the birth order really mattered here. If you're the older brother, you got two-thirds if there were two boys. Now, if there were five kids, you'd just get a double share. You'd get, you know, two-fifths. But if you're the eldest in a family, the eldest son, you got two uh, of the normal uh, shares in an inheritance. That's a birthright. A blessing was related to sort of a rite of passage where the father would sit you down in some sort of formal ceremony and he would acknowledge your value, your worth. He would say things out loud. He would talk about your special qualities. He would almost make prophetic statements about your future. You know, this is what I see in your future because of the character qualities I see in you. It was a deeply meaningful sort of rite of passage that took place in ancient culture. Talked about your destiny. Dad predicted your future and a commitment on his part to fulfilling it. Now this often seems to as well be based on birth order. It could be, but it wasn't necessarily. It had to do with one's place or leadership in the clan came from that right or custom. Now what's interesting is it had been predicted in the first scene that Jacob would be the one who would rise above Esau. The second-born would be the preeminent, predominant one. But Jacob's insecurity, because of his relationship with Dad, led him to try to manipulate all of this. Now, three scenes appear in chapters 27. We read the first one through, uh, or chapter 25 and 27. The first scene, we have God's prophecy to Rebecca. She's pregnant. She hasn't been pregnant before. Maybe she's got a little morning sickness, but things are getting bigger a little quicker than normal, and there seems to be a lot of fighting going on inside of her. She doesn't know what is going on. She's having this bizarre pregnancy, and finally she inquires of the Lord, and God says, you know what, There's, you got twins. Congratulations. And so he says, and even then God told her that the younger would be the predominant, the preeminent one. The elder would serve the younger. Now, what's interesting about this is I'm sure she told Isaac this. I'm sure she told her husband, you know, I was praying, and, and there was pretty much an audible voice, Isaac. I know I heard from God. We're going to have babies. There's going to be two, and actually the, the older is going to serve the younger. I'm sure she told her husband that. I'm sure she told Jacob that. 
But this uneven parenting that these boys had experienced led to a lack of confidence in God's original promise. Jacob had no sense that dad would honor what God had said. So he takes matters into his own hands because he's insecure, because he's got no sense of value from dad, no sense of security in the clan or the family. Dad loves my brother. Dad doesn't love me. So he's at home cooking one day. He's making lentil stew. He had a great recipe. Esau comes in from the field. He's been hunting. He's doing Esau stuff. He comes in. He's hungry. And he smells the lentil stew. And Jacob was good. He had a little chef job going on on the side. Did a little catering. It's in the Hebrew. So Esau says, I want some of that, some of that stew, Jacob. And Jacob is a manipulative character probably by nature, but also because of this uneven parenting. He's become very manipulative. He's determined to get what he feels is his because dad isn't naturally giving it to him. So he says, well, I'll give you some of this stew, but I want your birthright. Swear to me you'll give me your birthright. And in a moment of sort of stupidity, because it says Esau despised his birthright. In other words, he didn't consider something important that was extremely important in their culture. He said, what good is it going to do if I'm dead? So sure, whatever. You can have my birthright. And in that moment, this transaction took place, which elevated Jacob, getting twice the inheritance. There's a shocking disdain in Esau's life for the privileges that he had by birth. Well, after that, you know, Jacob has sort of manipulated this, but it wasn't given to him by mom and dad. He's still not necessarily secure about it. You know, he's got this agreement with his brother who probably doesn't like him any more than he likes his brother. And mom and dad have created this competition to some degree. So there's another situation. Dad is ready to die. Dad's blind. He's not doing real well. Breathings get a little more intermittent. He's struggling. He says, Isaac, I, or Isaac says, Esau, I want you to go out. I want you to go hunting. I want you to kill, kill a deer or something. Bring it back. Cook it the way we like it. You know, with that wild game flavoring that we get from Cabela's. Do that. And I want you to bring me some. We're going to eat it together. And I'm going to bless you, son. Well, Rebecca overhears this conversation. Esau's you know, blind. He's probably not hearing as well. So he's kind of yelling a little bit at his kid. Rebecca's at the door. She's got her ear to the, you know, to the door. She hears this. And she says to Jacob, 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 come on. Come over here. Put the recipe away. We got a problem. Your dad is about ready to bless your brother and give him the blessing, the preeminence in the plan. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go kill two goats. And we're going to make the game recipe that your dad likes, you know, with the Cabela seasoning that we talked about. And we're going to take lamb skins and we're going to put them on your hands and on your neck. And we're going to dress you in Esau's robe so you smell like Esau. We're going to go into your blind father. We're going to present you as Esau so you receive the blessing. And so they execute this devious plan from mom. And that's exactly what happens. Jacob is acknowledged as the leader of the future nation. No, it's something God said was going to happen anyway. It didn't have to be manipulated. But because of his insecurity, because of the way dad treats his brother versus him, he feels he needs to manipulate this. Dad has been deceived by the time it's over. Esau is vowing to kill Jacob. 
And so Jacob is sent away. Interestingly, once this happens, they had such a view that the words matter. They never said, this, you know, this can be undone, you fooled me, et cetera, et cetera. Once it was said, it was said. There was no undoing it. So Jacob is sent away for his own self-preservation, and he prospers. He is blessed. He has a large family, great success, wealth, everything. But even though he has it all, he has this hole in his heart. And I would submit it's not a God hole. I know some of you want to over-spiritualize this, and I get that, and I'm fine with that. You might be a little oversaved. It's not a God hole. It's a parenting deficit. It accompanies a God-sized hole because the security that we would normally have in God is harmed when we're not made secure in our families of origin. There is a connection. He has a personal security and a value deficit. He's got this parent wound, and it's deep. And he's tried to compensate with success, but this parent wounding is not going away. Interestingly, this wounding comes in our lives through a variety of forms, a variety of means. The one that we see here in this passage is favoritism. The worst thing you can do to your kids is compare them to each other out loud. Not good. Don't do it. Other father wounds come from abuse. Now, this can come from mom, too, but it's called the father wound. We like to blame more men in the world than women, so we're just going to go with it. It's Father's Day. Abuse, whether physical or emotional, is another way we're wounded as children. Neglect or absenteeism, where a child wants their attention, we don't give it to them. We're overly critical of them. You know, they're trying, but nothing's ever good enough for us, which is really our problem, not theirs. And when we do that, when we show favoritism or abuse or neglect or absenteeism or we're critical, then the children begin to compensate in many ways that make us the adults we've become. If you show favoritism to your kids, you know what's likely to happen to them? A couple of things. They might become very competitive or very perfectionistic, like I'm going to show them I've got value. I'll be perfect then mom and dad will love me. In fact, some of the greatest companies in the world have probably achieved great success out of a desire to prove to mom and dad that you're worth something. I'm not the only person who believes that. There's stuff written about this. It drives people. It drives them to succeed, sadly. Now, we want them to succeed. We want great things to happen, but it shouldn't happen because of our insecurity. Or... When we do this to our kids, some of them just say, I give up. I give up. I just don't want to feel the pain of never being good enough for mom and dad, so they start drowning themselves in chemicals or drugs so they don't have to feel anything. Or they just disconnect. Why try? Why try? Because nothing I ever do is going to be enough for mom and dad. That wound that we can pass on as parents comes back in many, many, many forms. Third, Jacob finally found what he needed all along in God. Now, Jacob is in midlife. He's wealthy. He's successful. He's prominent. Now, he's got a brother who wants to kill him, but other than that, I mean, life is turning up roses. 
but he wants to reconcile with his brother. He knows it's the right thing to do. So he heads towards his, his brother's tribe, clan now at this point. His brother's basically a small nation at this point. He camps by a small river. The details of the text says I think he sends part of his family one direction, a part the other direction. He's afraid that, hey, if part of my family gets wiped out, at least some of them will live. I mean, he's preparing for battle here. He doesn't want a battle. He wants to reconcile with his brother. So he's there kind of by himself. He doesn't want to show up with his whole clan and get murdered by his brother and all his family as well. Man shows up by the edge of the river. Now we know that man actually was an angel or God, the way Jacob actually describes it later. Some would say this might be a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. That's an interesting yet debatable uh, view. So Jacob figures out that this is, this is God appearing to him either directly or in angelic form, and, and they start wrestling. Now, I'm not sure how the wrestling match started. I don't know if God made the first move, you know, and Jacob says, I can grab that leg, I can flip God. I don't know how it happened. My son's a wrestler. I mean, there's techniques. But Jacob got in a wrestling match with God. They're in the wet sand on the side of a river. Jacob has God down. He can't pin him. It's hard to pin God. Jacob's got God down. God's doing pretty well. And God can always pull that miracle thing. I used to joke in the weight room that I want to get to heaven. I want to have a bench press contest with Jesus where he can't use the God powers, you know? Some of you consider that very sacrilegious, but it's kind of funny. All right. So Jacob's wrestling with God. I don't know if he's using the God powers, but eventually he does. And he touches Jacob's hip and knocks it out of the socket. He uses the God powers. He cripples Jacob. Jacob won't give up. And he hangs on to God and he says, I am not letting you go until you bless me. Now what's interesting about that is that's what he's looking for the blessing. He's looking for what he never could find at home. I want to know that I have value in your eyes. And this deep deficit, which we all want from God, was deeper in his life because it was always missing. He never got it. Here's how that story ended. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men. Interestingly, he says, you've striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it you ask my name? And he blessed him there. God blessed him. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I've seen God face to face. That's what Peniel means. Yet my life has been preserved. Sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites don't eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh and the sinew of the hip. There's a wonderful but complicated sort of outcome here. Jacob finally found value and acceptance and security and blessing, and he found it in God, and we would all say, that is great. But Jacob was never intended to only find it in God. God ultimately does give us our value. We have intrinsic value because we're made in God's image. That comes from God. But the most important people in our lives, mom and dad, are intended to incorporate that into our lives as we grow up as well. And Jacob missed out on that. Some of us missed out on that. Some people close to us that we affect might be missing out on that.
So I want to close with a few applications. First, do I know the connection between family dynamics and spiritual dynamics? Now, I think it's kind of fascinating that Moses wrote this extended narrative that long ago in history, where Moses clearly understands the family dynamics and clearly understands how it affected Jacob. I, to me, Moses had a psych degree. I mean, he was a prophet and he had a theology degree. He had a psych degree as well. This is fascinating literature written thousands of years ago talking about these family dynamics. And I'm not reading too much into the text here. That is a part of what we're trying, what we're being given here by Moses. It's fascinating. Jacob's struggle was real. It was extremely repeatable. We often do this by accident as parents. The kids don't come with instructions. We have them when we're younger in life often, and we make mistakes. But there is a connection between the family dynamics that we grew up in, that our kids grew up in, and how it affects us spiritually. Do you know what the common theme is between men, hundreds of thousands of men in prison? Do you know what the common theme is? a broken relationship with dad. That is not a Christian conclusion, that is a sociological conclusion. You do not find men in prison who have good relationships with their fathers. This deficit puts people on a path that we wish we could stop. Second, am I healing from the past? Hurting people hurt other people. I've seen this over and over and over. Unresolved conflicts from people's childhood tend to just be time bombs in their lives that go off all around us. We need to work them out. Am I healing from the past? Many of us have wounds from our childhood. I did. I experienced the father wound. But in my 20s, I got together with my dad, and we started working on it. And my dad took a lot of ownership over issues that he could have done better, and we reestablished a relationship that has continued Am I healing from the past? It doesn't do any good to try to set it aside and say it doesn't matter. You need to heal. Third, have I done my best to help heal others? Now, one of the things my siblings and I were committed to as we grew up and we got married and started having kids is we're like, we're not going to repeat certain things that we felt happened to us when we were young. And I think we all didn't repeat them. But that doesn't mean we didn't make mistakes. We might have made some other mistakes. And not long ago in my kids' lives, a few years back, I got together with every one of them, either on the phone or in person, and said, okay, you know what? I raised you. I wasn't a perfect father. Have I left any damage in your life that we need to work through? Because I don't want my kids to go through this for a lifetime. And we talk through things. Have I done my best to help heal others? If there are broken relationships in your life that you've contributed to, you have incredible power to heal those relationships, to help another person sort of restore where they should be at with these issues and move on. Fourth, is there a rite of passage I should be pursuing? Now what I mean by that is this. There were these interesting customs in the Old Testament that had great meaning in people's lives. And we're not commanded to do the birthright and the blessing like this. I mean, we're not, we're not a part of that culture necessarily. These aren't commands. We just see this illustrated in the Bible. But there are some interesting rites of passage that are available that seem to circulate in the Christian community. One of them that Dee Dee and I did with each of our kids is called Passport to Purity. Any of you ever heard of that? A few of you? Okay, thank you. I see that hand. Okay. 
So Passport to Purity is put out by a Christian organization, and with each one of our kids, I remember when I did this with my son, I took him to County Stadium in Milwaukee. We went to a Brewers game or two, and, and on the way, we stayed in a hotel, and we worked through this workbook that helps kids in their preteen years to determine when they get in relationships with the opposite sex, how far are they going to go? Where are they going to set the boundaries? How are they going to stay pure till marriage? And you literally talk through all of it with your child, which is awkward, but meaningful. As your kids are walking through this very important issue of purity in their lives and making decisions before they get into dating relationships about what they think is appropriate and not, and it becomes a marker in their lives about how they want to live for Jesus. There are books being written on this idea of the blessing Men's Fraternity talks about it. I have a friend who wrote a book on it. Gary Smalley and John, Friend, uh, John Trent wrote a book about this called The Blessing, where it, you're, they're trying to help fathers formalize these moments with their sons where in sort of, or daughters, but where in these public ways you're basically talking about your kids and giving them value and significance and saying it in front of others. Sometimes I think... We, we, we lack those things in our lives as, as evangelical Christians. We don't have as much ceremony and sort of these, these specific things in life we want our kids to go through. And there are some really important rites of passage that we could do with our kids. And finally, am I an affirming person, leaving others better than I found them? You know, you might not have a situation in your life where you need to do this with a child. You may not have children. Things may be hunky-dory with your parents, that's great. But this issue of blessing others and, and putting value in their lives is something that in many ways we can do every day. And there are always people around us who are struggling with the kinds of issues that Jacob was struggling with because of their personal journeys. Sean and Leanne Tui, the real-life couple portrayed in the movie The Blind Side, Great football movie. Have you seen The Blind Side? If you haven't seen The Blind Side, I think I can give that one the five-star pastoral approval. That's very hard to get is the five-star approval. I can recommend that one. The Blind Side. She shared the following story uh, uh, in their book in a heartbeat. There's a little-known congressional program that awards internships to young people who have aged out of the foster care system. So the political system sort of has an internship for kids who have rough backgrounds, maybe haven't been able to stay with mom and dad. These are kids who were never adopted and they're no longer eligible for state support. So they wrote, a senator we met employed one such man as an intern. One morning the senator breezed in for a meeting, discovered that his intern was already in the office, reorganizing the entire mailroom. The senator said to the intern, this is amazing. This mailroom never looked so clean. You did a great job. A few minutes later, the senator saw the intern had tears streaming down his face. And he says, son, son, are you okay? Yes. Did I say something to offend you? No, sir. What's wrong? That's the first time in my life anyone's told me I did something good. Think about that. somebody probably late teens, college age, that's the first time in my life that somebody approved. Now there are people all around us who would, by our approval, 
and our blessing and our love and our affirmation and a sense of security and acceptance, who would find the gospel so attractive because of the deficit in their lives from their journeys, in their family of origin, their journey through life. They've got a hole in their heart from a parent wound, and they've got just as big a hole in their life because God hasn't helped them to fill it. Am I uh, an affirming person leaving others better than I found them? God, we thank you for your word. And we recognize that, and we thank you for, for our fathers. We're all imperfect, those of us who, who are fathers. We've all had fathers. We recognize that it's not an easy task. It's not an easy task to be a mom or a dad. We, we make mistakes, we do our best, and then later on we might understand the mistakes we made that we didn't realize at the time. But we do recognize the value of mom and dad and, and what they do in our lives as they, as they nurture us and give us value and a sense of security which deeply impacts our connection to God later on. I pray that you would give us great wisdom as we, for those who are raising kids, those who are connected to grandkids, give us great wisdom as we try to build into their lives a sense of blessing, a sense of value, a sense of encouragement, a sense of security. Because we know that prepares their hearts for that same kind of relationship with God. Help us to be those kinds of people. Maybe we don't have a situation directly with family like this, but there are people all around us who need a sense of affirmation and love. And it's such a beautiful part of the gospel to affirm the value in others. I pray that we would all do that, not just in our families, but with other people we're around, particularly people outside of faith who need a touch of God through his family. Help us be people who are blessing others. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.